and just had a little um, little scroll through the, the various different cameras that are on and big shout out for the many Christmas jumpers, Christmas decorations, all of those things. I am so sorry, I'm letting the side down big time, but uh, it's great to see so many of you starting to, um, to get into it. And I wonder what do you think when you hear the word Advent? Um, for many of us, I guess it depends on your upbringing a little bit and your background, but I, f I imagine for many of us, it doesn't actually, uh, it's not particularly significant. Um, we might just think of it as kind of the days of December leading up to or, or, or counting us down, maybe a countdown towards Christmas Day. And, and maybe the most significant thing for you personally about Advent is the Advent calendar and uh, a calendar that you open up each day and inside is a mini little chocolate gift. And so then by default, every day of December is better than any of the other days of any of the other months because you are guaranteed to get a little bit of chocolate in there. And I think that's what Advent means for many of us. It's kind of a, um, if you like, a pre-celebration of Christmas, an extension of the good times and the joy of Christmas. That there's kind of a recognition, yeah, look, Christmas Day, that is the big one. That's the day of joy and celebration and feasting and everything's leading up to there. And then Advent has kind of become, well, yeah, but until then, let's extend it. Let's have a daily mini celebration, a, a chocolate mini feast every single day to extend out Christmas as much as we can and get as much as we can from it. But traditionally, Advent has been very different. It comes, the word Advent comes from the word, uh, the, the Latin for the word coming. And very much the focus there is on the idea that Jesus is coming, he has not yet come. We are in the time before he has arrived. And it is a season marked very much by the not yet. A season of waiting, a season of, a season of longing, of, of almost aching for things to get better, for Jesus to arrive. And in fact, in the fourth century, Christians, rather than having a daily chocolate mini feast, they would fast during Advent. They would willingly choose to engage with the pain of the world and, and of the pain that comes with the not yet. Now, I can see many of you hyperventilating and reaching for the leave meeting button. This is not the application of today's message. I'm not calling for a three week fast ending in Christmas Day because actually there's, there's nothing wrong with the joyful anticipation of Christmas. There's nothing wrong with having our spirits lifted as we look and the idea of the light coming and Jesus arriving gets closer and closer and closer and we can see him on the horizon. And especially if we as believers are able to, to train our minds and cut through the, the things that we might be formed to look to and actually consciously choose. No, I'm, I'm looking to the birth and the arrival of Jesus on earth. The Messiah has come rather than looking at the birth of a new pair of Air Jordans under our Christmas tree whatever it would be that would make you happy. However, as we enter into this most unique of Christmas times, I wanted to bring a, a pastoral word, I guess, in the spirit of Advent for us to encourage us to actually enter into this traditional idea of, of the Advent season. And so I'm calling today's message Darkness Before Light. And I want us to, to take a moment to reflect on 2020 and encourage us to engage in 
the reality of what the last 12 months have been. And so this isn't really your typical Christmas message. So in part, I apologise if you were tuning in hoping for, for Yuletide cheer and all of those things. But there will be time for a joyful anticipation of the Messiah coming for us. And, and that will be our tone in the coming weeks as we do our carols and on the weeks after that. But today I want to, a slightly different tone that we, before we rejoice in the light, I think Advent first, first asks us to come to terms with the darkness that we find ourselves in. And so today I'm going to read from Isaiah chapter 8, verse 21. That will be our starting place and I'll read um, through a few verses from there. So Isaiah 8, 21, if you've got a Bible, we'll, um, we'll open that up in just a moment. And Isaiah is prophetic literature. And so it, Isaiah was a prophet. He was speaking into and, and confronting in some ways God's people. And this particular passage um, speaks of God's people the Israelites, as they are about to be taken off into exile, so away from their homeland into a, a godless nation. And so we'll read from verse 21. They will pass through, that's, that's the Israelites, God's people, will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward, and they will look to the earth. But behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Chapter 9. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. And as the passage continues and goes into uh, the rest of Isaiah chapter 9, quite rightly, that, that is a, a passage that we cannot get enough of as we enter into this time and reflect on the arrival of the Messiah, the birth of Jesus. The, it's kind of trailered there as the light has arrived and it expands on us. It's the, the reading you might be familiar with that, that goes into talking, to us a son is born is born to us a son is given his name shall be called wonderful counselor mighty god prince of peace everlasting father it is rich and deep in its expression and description of who jesus is going to be as he arrives on earth and it's so good and so rich that when december rolls around often i think we just want to go straight there and straight, rightly, we want, to, we want to see this light that has come. We want to drink in the splendour of Jesus and marvel once more at the, the sheer impossibility made possible of God in all of his godness becoming man. Not just becoming man, but becoming child, becoming vulnerable, becoming weak. But these verses that come before all of that remind us and draw our attention to the fact that before there was light, before the light shone, there was no light. 
there was a people living in darkness. That is the word that runs through the passage. I don't know if you picked it up. Verse 22, it talks of a people in distress and darkness, a people thrust into thick darkness. Verse 2, we read of a, a people walking in darkness. And then if we hadn't picked up the idea, it ends with a people dwelling in deep darkness. And this was a darkness for the people of God that lasted 700 years, 700 years between this prophetic proclamation by Isaiah and the light Jesus finally arriving in the world. That these were a people, the Israelites, who in this time, they had to become acquainted with darkness. They had to learn how to navigate the difficult, the struggle, the tough times as they waited as they longed for the light to shine 700 years before in Bethlehem in a tiny home in an animal's feeding trough a great light began to shine and we might think oh well this is this is their story from from 700 well 2700 years ago now this is their story they were in darkness they were awaiting a light but it's not our story the great light has, has come. The, the light has shone in Jesus. We, we, this is no longer us. But the way that prophetic literature actually often works is that, yes, it does have an original historic meaning for a very specific group of people to mean something very specific. But then as time increases and as, as time goes on, it does what scholars called it telescopes out. I just love that phrase. It kind of it starts here for the for the for the original meaning. But then as time goes on and as God's story develops and as the situation and circumstances of his people change, it has repeated slightly different meaning throughout the ages. And it has meaning for us. That we too are a people waiting for the light. To shine. Undoubtedly the light has begun to shine, hallelujah, that is one of the things that we will be reflecting on as the weeks go on. Jesus is here. We do no longer walk in darkness just as Martin prayed out before. The light has come and yet you just have to look all around us to know the darkness does still remain. In fact the darkness is all around us. And we've seen that so clearly this year. That we are in many ways just as the Israelites are here. We are a people surrounded by darkness. We are waiting. We are longing for the light of Christ. Not now to come for the first time, but to shine in the fullness of his radiance as he comes again in the future. And so we see here that the, the waiting and the longing for the light to come is then learning how to live in the darkness, how to journey through the darkness that is described in verse 22 as, as a time of distress and gloom and anguish and finding your way in a world that looks like that. And for the people of God here, the, the darkness that they're talking of the pain, is the pain of exile where they were taken from their home, they were taken from all of their possessions, everything they'd ever known, the promised land that had been given them to God, they were separated and taken 
from God himself in their thought. This is a story and a moment for the the people of God of intense separation, of overwhelming loss, of confusion, of God, what are you doing? How have you allowed this? In many ways, exactly the same feelings that characterise our 2020. This has been a year for us of great separation, of overwhelming loss of confusion, of God, what are you doing? Why are you allowing this? And it seems so obvious that I think it doesn't get said enough, but I think it needs to be said. 2020 has been a heartbreaking, traumatic year for all of us. All of us have been and are wounded by what has happened in 2020. Some of us more than others, but all of us have experienced loss and all of us have witnessed loss on a scale that we have not seen before. An unprecedented scale in our generation. And just to take a few examples from from our our family and just a, a few of those things that have happened. We have, just as we talked about before, we've got first year students who have arrived in this city in this this the second biggest city in the UK. I don't care what they say over in Birmingham, the second biggest city, with this sprawling city filled with, with of size and expanse and possibility and potential. And they find themselves claustrophobically hemmed in to a flat in a very kind of oppressive in some ways environment are barely able to meet anybody in person miles and miles away from home, Southampton to Manchester, just to take Eden's example. And in some cases, in situations where the, the accommodation has been so mismanaged by, uh, by the university staff that it's made the national news three times, by my count anyway, in the space of about six weeks. We've got people that have lost their jobs and not just lost their jobs, but lost the entire industry that their whole careers have been built on, just in a moment like that, gone. We've had people lose loved ones through COVID. They've caught the virus and it has taken their life. And then those same ones who have lost loved ones have then had the indignity and the dehumanisation of having to engage with the funeral service via webcam. We've had many in the church who have gone through weeks of barely sleeping and then all of the associated mental health and physical health impact that that can have when we are sleep deprived simply because their bedroom has become their office. And the situation that was never planned for, it was never meant to be like this. And they have been stuck in a flat that was never designed for that purpose. And then on top of all of these individual things, we have been separated from each other. We've been denied the opportunity to be together, to hug, to share our pain. We've had nine months of not being able to gather together and worship, to express our praise through song as one body and to cry out to God together. The, the, the lifeblood of who we are as a family. We have been cut off from this vital sustenance that keeps us going and we need even at the best of times, how much more do we need it now? And yet we haven't had it. And so we actually have so much to thank God for 
that he has sustained us, he has strengthened us, he has kept us going and he has blessed us through this. And on a, on a church-wide family level and at an individual level, there is so much testimony of, thank you God that you have done this. And yet it is a year that has been fraught with pain for all of us. We're living in deep darkness. And yet how to live in darkness, how to journey through these dark times, I actually think is an area where many of us are underdeveloped in our discipleship to Jesus. And I have this inkling because I know myself that I am underdeveloped in knowing how to walk through this in a godly, Christ-centred way. Because many of us, I know not all of us, but many of us growing up in the West and growing up in the Western church, we have, we've led very sheltered lives. We haven't had to experience loss and pain in any, any big scale, um, any nationwide country level scale. And so as a result, we haven't really been taught, okay, well, when it comes, how do we actually process it and how do we live it out in our relationship and our walk of following Jesus? What does it mean to grieve? What does it mean to, to mourn? And now we are experiencing loss on an individual, local, communal, national, global scale. And we, we just don't know what to do with it. It's all come at once and it's overwhelming. And one of the things that I've been shocked at when I've looked in my own heart is with this onslaught of loss and sadness, how easy it is to do nothing about it. That there's this pain and, and loss all around me and there is sadness in my own life of the way that, that my life has been affected by it. And yet my, my default reaction, I wonder if you can identify with this, my default reaction is, is not to grieve, it's not to cry, it's not to lament, it's not to bring these things to God. But actually how I've noticed that I will almost do anything to avoid confronting the pain that is in my heart. Do you see that in yourself? That I'll just, I'll numb the pain or distract myself from it. Yeah, just, a, just another night in front of Netflix, please. I won't even, I won't, won't look at it at all. Or I'll do all kinds of mental gymnastics to convince myself, oh, I'm not really in pain because I know someone else that has it worse and is experiencing pain much worse than mine. So I somehow managed to convince myself, well, that means that I'm not in pain if someone else is, is experiencing life a bit more worse. Or sometimes I think it is just deep down, I know there is something there that I probably should deal with and process, but it just seems like a lot of effort. And I don't know if I've got the energy or inclination to do it. That in that moment, there's just a million and one things that I would rather do in that time, that I found that I would almost do anything to avoid facing up to the idea that I might be hurting and in pain in this time. And it turns out this is not a unique thing to our time and our generation. John Calvin, who was uh, right at the heart of the Protestant Reformation, so we are talking 1500s here, he spoke of a, listen to this quote, the mischievous tendency which we have naturally to keep our troubles 
pent up in our breast till they drive us to despair. Usually, he says, indeed men show much anxiety and ingenuity in seeking to escape from the troubles which may happen to press upon them. But so long as they shun coming into the presence of God, they only involve themselves in a labyrinth of difficulties. <laughs> a labyrinth of difficulties that he then goes on to say, embitter the mind against God. Now at this present moment in time, high on my list of things to avoid are a labyrinth of difficulties and embittering my mind against God. I could do with not having a labyrinth of difficulties added onto me at this moment, thank you very much. And what Calvin is saying here, is he saying that if we want to come through this darkness that we are facing with our long-term joy in God intact, with our hearts still loyal to Jesus, with our minds not embittered towards God, but rejoicing in him, if we want that, we cannot afford to avoid the pain, to avoid the pain that is present in all of our hearts. Instead, actually, we need to be active in acknowledging the pain that we have and bringing it into the presence of God. He's saying that we're not going to drift into it. It's not going to happen by default. We need to choose to do it. And if we wanted a, a compelling biblical case that in times of trouble and darkness, we need to bring them into the presence of God, we need look no further than the whole book of Psalms. This book in the Bible, um, you may be familiar with it, it is unique in all of the scriptures. It's a, a long book of, of prayers to God and many have described it in different ways. Some describe it as, as kind of a guide for our hearts in how we relate to God. And there is 150 of these Psalms, 150 of these prayers to God. And they encompass the range of human emotions and a full 42 out of the 150 are psalms of lament, psalms of expressing the pain and the grief and the confusion right in the midst of the darkness of life. These are psalms written in the waiting for God, in the longing for things to change. God, will you come and move? Will you work in the darkness that I am facing? And yet as they wait and long for that change, in the midst of it all, in the midst of the darkness, pouring out their hearts to God. As an example, so crying out saying, have mercy on me, Lord, for I am faint. Heal me, Lord, for my bones are in agony. My soul is in deep anguish. How long, Lord, how long? It's this kind of thing. This is what we're meant to do when we find ourselves in a situation where darkness surrounds us. This is how we are to come before God and approach him, pouring out the troubles of our heart in the presence of God. And there is no better example for us than Jesus himself. The Psalms are often referred not just as a, as a book of prayer, but the prayer book of Jesus, that these 150 prayers, 42 of which are lament and grieving and waiting and longing, are the prayers that formed and shaped Jesus's own heart. And we see in Isaiah 53 that Jesus was is referred to as a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. 
And notice that what it's saying there is it's not saying that Jesus was acquainted with bad things happening to him. He wasn't acquainted with living in times of darkness and having darkness around him, although it is saying that, but it's saying he's acquainted with grief, the correct and right emotional response to being in that place. And it is on the cross where we see most vividly this raw emotion of Jesus being expressed. His heart outpouring, his cry of dereliction, Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? The darkest moment in all of history. And Jesus walked through it walked through this darkness by putting language to his pain and expressing it in the presence of his father. And so for us, when we consider doing this, this is not just a healthy thing for us to do. It's not just a good idea. It's not just something that psychotherapists would recommend to us, but this is an essential part of our formation as disciples of Jesus. This is for all of us, not just the emotional ones, not just the reflective ones, but for all of us, this is part of us being like Christ. This is part of what John writes in chapter 15 of his gospel of part of our abiding in Christ, part of us finding our home in him and being united with him as we take on his likeness is learning to be acquainted with our grief, acquainted with grieving over the circumstances of 2020 and the various ways it's affected us and challenged us and caused pain to us directly or from witnessing it in others being acquainted with our grief just as Jesus was acquainted with his I'm convinced that in this time as all times Jesus is committed to building us into resilient and fully formed disciples that we would keep being able to evermore live faithfully and obediently to him and the process of discipleship formation always involves going through adversity and difficulty I mean you just have to look at the life of the apostle Paul for instance a, a model disciple for us he was formed through challenge and adversity coming upon him almost at every turn and my question and my challenge, I guess, to myself, to us is, is don't we want to be fully formed disciples? Don't we want to be formed in every way that Jesus wants to shape us? Because I think that there's an opportunity for us here in this Advent time where he would want to add something to us. Help us learn how to be Christ-like as we wait in the darkness. To keep our long-term joy in him intact by, by now choosing to bring the pain that is there into his presence and pouring out our hearts. Now, for some of you, as I'm speaking all of these things, it's, it's the necessary provocation you need and, and you're hearing it and you're thinking, yes, I, I ought to do some of that. And you know what to do. You know how to take it away. You know how to apply it into your life. But I'm equally aware that there might be some that are thinking, Duncan, this sounds good, but I don't know how to do it. What does that look like? I, I am underdeveloped, just like you in this. And I never want to be too descriptive, but maybe just a few pointers as a starting place. I think rather than trying to think, okay, I'm gonna process all of the pain that there is and all of the bad things that I've witnessed, 
I think just maybe sitting down and thinking, okay, what are the, the three things that have made my heart the heaviest this year? What are the three things that have most impacted me? Whether they're things that have happened to you, loved ones, just, just things that you've witnessed maybe that you, you're not even involved in. And then once you've identified those things, asking yourself, okay, just to, to help flesh them out for you, why do I feel, why, do, why are these painful to me? Why do they provoke feelings of, why have they troubled me? Why does it feel like loss? And, and also to kind of, how do they make you feel? How did, how did you feel in the moment when those things happened? Just to start to get to grips with some of the pain that is in there so that you've got language to be able to express them to God. I think as well, another really helpful thing is, is asking questions of God. Notice in that quote from the Psalms and Jesus's own cry, the psalmist cries out, how long, O Lord? And Jesus cries out, why have you forsaken me? Actually, a big part of this process is asking God, saying, God, you're meant to be good. Why am I not seeing the goodness that I expect from you working out in this situation? It's a form of we can we can hold God to account almost for his goodness because he is a good God. And so we can expect goodness and it actually expresses some of our faith in him that he would turn the situation around and show it to be good. And so asking questions of God is actually a really healthy thing to do in this context. And I think it's really important that we we do this out loud and we externalize our feelings. There's something so powerful in getting these outside of us into the, the, the kind of into God's presence rather than just thinking them. And I know that that for many of us, that's not what we're used to, or we're still growing in that. And so if you feel like oh, that would be a bit of a step, I would encourage you first to, to write it down, write down what you want to say to God. And that act in itself is also a powerful one. It is a, a way of externalizing. And then taking what you've written down and then reading it out loud can be a great starting place in that. As with all of these kind of things, it will take a bit of practice. Do not be discouraged if it feels awkward and it feels unnatural and it feels like this isn't what I'm used to in prayer. As I say, we are underdeveloped in these kind of things. And so it will feel a bit foreign for many of us. But this is a pattern of prayer that we are looking to cultivate in our hearts and in our lives. So like anything, a little bit and often is a great way to grow. Just 30 seconds of trying to pour out your heart and trying to engage your emotions before God and, and pray, God, why did you do this? Doing that every day, every other day, a couple of times a week. Great way to start and a great way to grow. So I encourage you. Do give it a go because right now we are in advent right now we we wait we're in the darkness but we face this darkness now in confidence we know light is coming we don't face the darkness in hopeless fear but in a confident expectation the same confident expectation, actually, that the prophet Isaiah wrote this down. He said, I know in 700 years, a light is coming. Right now, it is darkness. But the darkness has been pierced. In Bethlehem, 2,000 years ago, just the tiniest pinprick of light started to breach through the darkness. 
And ever since that moment, the glory of God's kingdom has expanded and expanded across nations, across civilizations, across people groups, across throughout all generations, across the globe. Unendingly, the light of Christ has been brightening and brightening and casting out the darkness. And we now await one day, the great day, the day of our Lord. The day that we have spent much of this term in our teaching time looking at and anticipating with awe. The day where there will be no darkness. Where we will be with the light of the world in all of his radiance. That the boy born vulnerable and helpless among stable animals into this world is going to lead us through into the new world, the new heavens and the new earth, where, as we saw just a couple of weeks ago in Revelation chapter 22, night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever.